When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. You're on the Food Channel. I'm Laura Goldberg. You might know me from my blog, vittlesvamp.com. I am here today with independent food historian Christina Ward, and we're going to be talking about her new book, which is called Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat and American History. Really glad to have you here. Um, Gotta say, the book is really, really quite fantastic. Uh, Gosh, thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. I'm I'm a fan of of your blog. Oh, wow! Uh, because like so many people who are involved in food, we love food, and so we love making it, cooking it, eating it, and of course, learning about and researching why we're eating and making and cooking all those things. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But I think you know my my day job is in sort of the media, marketing, advertising world. So um, I'm a particular fan of yours because of your previous book, American Advertising Cookbooks, How Corporations Taught Us to Love Spam, Bananas, and Jello." And so um, I love the way you went straight from Madison Avenue to God. Um, now, I know people in the industry might think that isn't quite as big a leap, but still, you know, I, and everything is rooted, my work is rooted in cookbooks. I love cookbooks. And as someone who studies history, I think that cookbooks are a real untapped resource, especially a primary resource um, and a place where a lot of women's voices are. And there's not enough women in history and being talked about in history. And it's one of the ways I've interacted with food as a both a collector and a researcher. So I've got um, a ton of advertising cookbooks, and they came about at such an interesting time, very 20th century, um, and that convergence of cheap printing and as well as corporate conglomeration and advances in food tech that allowed processing and canning uh, and preservation of food in in an industrial way. And so it became this really interesting journey to figure out, you know, what are we eating for real? And what are we eating because someone told us to put mayonnaise and peanut butter together? I was traumatized by that as a child. So that you want traumatized hearing about it. So um, <laughs> please. Ugh. I mean, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I hear you. I mean, uh, you know, now today, you know, brands are taking to TikTok to get us to do these things. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't realize that it's it, it is a machine and and obviously, reading your book, God's gotten into the game. Faith is now a brand as well um, in in the the food world. Um, and I I was really surprised. I mean, you know, just thinking about the Catholic Church, which you know 
put out this edict that you aren't supposed to be eating meat on Fridays. And that, you know, led to the popularity of fish fries, but also McDonald's own filet fish sandwich. So, uh, you know, it, it just and it goes to show. It, it goes to show, again, how purely American it is and the phenomenon of having religiously, you know, inspired not just food, but also food businesses. Um, and this is one of those, again, only in America, kids, uh, because of the convergence of the tax laws and the First Amendment. So no one in our government, as much as people may think otherwise, uh, can stop anyone from believing whatever they want to believe and establishing a religious organization around it. Um, and so that's become a real kind of a centerpiece of modern American spirituality is the monetization and Food is one of the ways that people can monetize it. And that works in both ways. When we look at the McDonald's example, is there was a franchise owner in uh, the heavily Catholic areas of the country, which is in the Midwest, along you know Buffalo, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, Cleveland. And he noticed a sales drop-off in his hamburgers on Fridays and invented the filet fish sandwich. And that was something McDonald's corporate instituted recommended people to do they had if you had an idea try it out and then take it to corporate and it went over so well with not just catholics everybody wanted a fish sandwich and now what is i think it's been around for over 50 years on the menu yeah. i mean it's interesting though thinking about fish fries i had a guest on the show recently that um wrote a book um that was specifically about barbecue and um he was talking to his wonderful book, Ed Mitchell's Barbecue, and this was his son, Ryan Mitchell, who's also an incredible pit master. And he was talking about fish fries at, at church and how popular they are. I mean, I do still think that there is a base of people that are involved in spirituality and, and they're not making money on the food. It's still celebration. It's still community, and and that's beautiful, and that's in this book as well. I just want to say that it's. I know I started off with all the branding. I don't want to dismiss those that are are truly embracing community and and spirituality, and and food finds a way to be a play a role. And I think, and that's sometimes the tension built in is between is it um, you know we talk about authenticity in food cultures a lot. What's yeah. authentic? What's not? Who gets to decide? And can those two ideas exist together? Um, I think about, again, I, I think I mentioned I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, very Catholic, on the water, on Lake Michigan. Yeah. And in, the churches themselves here used to host the fish fries. It was a fundraiser for the church itself. And so though, you know, monetized in a way, it was very much about the parish community and those communities that would then come in. One of the largest fish fries in the country is one that um, held in Milwaukee at Serb Hall. We have drive-through fish fries. And wait, wait, wait! Drive-through fish uh -huh. fries. So and I need to come to Milwaukee. Clearly, but multiple. So Saint <laughs> Sava's Church, Eastern Orthodox Serbian Orthodox, they have um, a big community center. They started years ago doing the fish fry. It tastes good, and so that's also the thing too. You, you can't just put like, you know, a fish stick in a deep fryer and call it a fish fry. Um, you know, that's also something about these kinds of foods. They need to taste good. Well, wait, people. wait, wait. I have to stop you there. Because in the beginning of your book, you start talking about, you know, because there are recipes in your book. There are, in addition to a tremendous amount of, of, of 
academic material and fascinating stories with incredible characters. But you said that um, a few recipes that look good on paper were rejected during te testing and tasting. Looking at you, True Light Beavers, the mock chop liver was vile. <laughs> so absolutely vile. <laughs> So it's and, not all great. <laughs> it's, it's not wild. Yeah, ready. But I think what, wine magazine. <laughs> what one of the keys to the groups that are successful in in publishing cookbooks or opening restaurants or opening even as a community, and it's one of the ways to attract people and as well as you know build that community is having good tasting food. So serve hall fit tries fantastic. People who are not Catholic, people who are not Serbian, people who are not Serbian Eastern <laughs> Orthodox. Line up for blocks to get um, the fish fry from Sir Paul, and that is the power of food and the religion. So, the, and it's always this uh, conversation back and forth between the spiritual, between the community, between the food itself, and and how it's presented to the world. Yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, I, I definitely caught that in the book, and um, I will say there. Besides the food, there was also. The extreme opposite, which was fasting, and I mean, I'm I'm a Jew, so Yom Kippur is coming up, and and uh, you you know, it's a basically 24 hours without any food or drink, and that's just so painful for a Jew. It's like a blowout sale on penitence, though. Um, but you know, the Hindus, the Buddhists, I mean, there's, you know, a definite focus on fasting as being something that will cleanse you. Um, and then also clean versus unclean food. I, I would love to hear more about all of that. So it's very interesting. Sometimes we have to put our minds, kind of think back to a couple thousand years ago, um, pre-hard science and pre-microscopes, pre-germ theory with pathogens. So when we think about how people look to explain the world they lived in, um, there wasn't an easy scientific explanation for why a plant would grow. Um, why something tasted good, why something might kill you if you ate it. And so people would uh, experiment as to what you could eat, what you couldn't eat. Yeah. And then answer that question about where did the food come from? And for many people, for many cultures, it comes from God. And so that just basic idea, if the food comes from God, God is good to us. And if we're bad to God, then we need to do a penance. We need to atone for our sins. And one of the ways is to give up eating, is to essentially mortify the flesh in a way, to show God that, you know, we're so grateful for the food. Um, please, please, please give it back to us. And so we'll show you how much we love it by denying it to ourselves. From this basic premise becomes of so many of the food rules and the it's almost the genesis of every idea about spirituality and food that goes together. And both the ancient ones that evolve and when modern ones, when people go back to the ancient beliefs and then try to reinterpret it. I'm thinking, of course, and so, uh, Elora, you're familiar with um, the Kashrut rules with Leviticus. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And so much goes on with that. But many of those rules in Leviticus um, would save somebody from eating something that could be contaminated or poisoned. So, you know, there's some legitimate, almost back science if we follow some of the rules we're actually eating a, a cleaner safer healthier diet uh, and so these things morph and these ideas and we talk about two of the people of the book and that's the abrahamic religions and that's judaism islam 
and Christianity are all rooted in, you know, I'm going to call it what it is. It's the Tanakh. It's the the combined Jewish early holy books. And then after that, it morphs. The Christians come in and, and do, you know, a, the New Testament, a version of it. Um, in Islam, again, the book is revered. The the Tanakh, the Abrahamic, what we call the Old Testament, is most Americans would recognize that. And then they have additional material to put on top of that and additional food rules. And so this is where it all comes from, this idea we feast to celebrate God's goodness and we fast to sell, to atone for our personal badness. Um, and this holiday of fasting and feasting, these uh, in Ramadan, yeah, Ramadan. Um, my favorite is he hearing girls, and again, this idea of modern culture in, in 20th century United, or 20, or first century United States, is I remember overhearing girls um, complaining when Ramadan falls in summer, because the Ramadan fast is, you know, sun up to sundown. And on a summer day, when the days are long, it's a much longer fast than when um, Ramadan falls in winter, shorter days. And so just sometimes the beautiful, almost banality of our humanness, of our, you know, we're hungry, but we still want to honor our God and our traditions and our belief, but we're still going to complain about being hungry. Well, we you know, hate I, the, 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 the offering. Well, I, you know, I'm hearing you say that these were, were girls saying this, and yet I remember being in school and girls, you know, crowing about the fact that, well, I haven't eaten today. You know, I'm not eating, to, you know. It, it, there was some sort of you know goodness um in in you know not eating you know that, um you know mind you I, I think that all plays into the whole diet culture and and you mentioned that religion sort of grounded the diet culture in the US and California in the 20s i believe yeah it, it, there's a couple of things that go through it so i'm going to go back to uh what often is referred to as like the seven deadly sins and if we notice that gluttony is one of those sins and it wasn't just Thomas Aquinas, but he detailed out what actually gluttony is. It comes back from Aristotle, this idea that humans, by either consuming too much food, consuming it too quickly, consuming it without reverence for the food, is essentially an affront to the gods. Um, and so that's the notion of gluttony. So it is so baked into American culture and then just kind of human existence, this idea that we can treat food badly, that we can behave badly around food, and that overconsumption of food is somehow a sin. It's an affront. And so that's where you get this idea of fasting is good. Fasting is good for God. And then you also get the, and again, we're going to go back to the Catholic tradition, the phenomenon called, um, called holy anorexia. There is revered in the Catholic Church, not so much now, um, but you know, pre-Vatican II, uh, so pre-1960s, this idea that you could live on just the Eucharist, just the little holy wafer alone. And by doing so, but by denying yourself the gift of God, of food, is that you somehow become more holy. And that is an idea accepted still to this day in the Catholic Church. They don't encourage the, the, the um, fasting as they once did in, in the nunneries. But that was considered a way to show your absolute subjugation to your God. I don't know. Unless you're going to start flavoring those wafers, putting a little something on them. I just don't see that. I mean, it, it, 
you know, and what's interesting is when you hear about this, it's usually women. It's usually the women that are the ones that are, are you know, fasting and starving. It, it's, it's, I don't think it's usually the men. Am I correct? In, in ancient times and in much more traditional, like what we call the mainstream religions, it is, it is women. It's yeah. women who are the kin keepers. It's women who are the hearth creepers who are kind of spiritually enforcing some of these food rules. Um, the men tend to get a pass. Um, but in earlier times, we talk it too. If you think about fasting, the stories of um, in the New Testament of Jesus in 40 days in the desert fasting. And yeah. now science can tell us that long-term fasting produces hallucinations. That's that's brain chemistry. There's no arguing that. And so it goes that, again, that tension of belief to facts of, so anyone um, embracing a long-term fast will actually experience and a hallucination. If you have a religious mindset already, if you're going on a spiritual journey and you're fasting while doing it, de facto, you're probably going to get a religious style spiritual message. Um, so it, it becomes really intertwined. The other thing we leap forward to modernity, I like so much about that story, is if you follow the story, the manna from heaven is St. John's bread, a plant. And from St. John's bread, we get carob. And the modern, not so much to this day, um, the little Debbie snack cakes were founded by the Seventh-day Adventists. They're not owned by the SDA anymore, but the earliest incarnations of these treats used carob instead of the chocolate. Now they use real chocolate. But this idea that they people can find um, God in every anything. anything. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. I mean... I, I will say I, I found it fascinating sort of going down the rabbit holes of some of the communes and cults that you discussed. Uh, I mean, you know, the notion of utopia with the Rapites and, and um, with the Harmonists, they, they, they made wine in Pennsylvania. But then also Madame Helena Blavatsky and Theosophy. And one of the reasons that that struck me is because there's a restaurant in Philadelphia. I went to Penn and there's a restaurant right on the campus that used to be her townhouse and it's called the White Dog Cafe. So I'd read about her before, but I mean, there's some tremendous characters in this book and and um, I would love you to talk about just a few of them. I mean, uh, I, there's so many, I, I just, I, I can't you know even begin like, Robert Matthews, you know, who's renamed Matthias. Uh, I mean, with the revivalists. Ah. Anyway, I'm going to shut up now and allow you to tell some stories. Well, one of the stories, and I think one of the overarching stories throughout this, is the small worldism. Is so many of the people that became influential in both you know religious movements and cults and communes, and then kind of in food culture, they knew each other. There was interaction between these people. So we, you're talking about Matthias, um, and that is such a fascinating story. Again, 1800s, and he's of a lineage after what you know they called the Great Awakening, that spiritual awakening, and it becomes the point when um, kind of American Protestantism really finds its own way. And it starts becoming much different than the kind of UK, the English version of Protestantism, Protestantism, Church of England, 
Yeah. And the key yeah. was this idea that you could have a direct relationship with God. You did not need an intermediary. And that actually came as you talked about the harmonists, the, these ideas brewing in Europe and Europe didn't want it again. They have state religions there. They have a government in all of the European principalities of the time. They could say, if you were saying, you know, something like, I'm talking to God right now. And they're like, you're going to jail right now. That is not what we believe. And so the United States became um, a haven for religious extremists. If we think about the the Mayflower and the Pilgrims, those were religious Puritan extremists. Um, True. You know, we don't think of it that way. You know, freedom of religion also means freedom to be crazy. Freedom. Yeah. What we forget, too, is that there's freedom from religion as well. Uh, True. True. Okay. Yeah. And so this is that early start. So we think about um, there's Finney and people were traveling on horseback. Preachers were, you know, starting their own churches. They were proselytizing. They were trying oh, yeah. to yeah. members. They were talking, going town to town to preach in a church. And people all throughout, you know, kind of Yankee New England were hearing these preachers. One of them, who heard Joseph Smith, who then, you know, he was living in New York. We associate the Latter-day Saints with Utah yeah, in Western New York. Um, the Harmonists started in Western New York. Um and they also, we talk about this, the great, the Finney, who was, again, the great proselytizer. He met Joseph Smith. He also um, met Matthias. He also met, who then also interacted with Joseph Smith from the Mormons. He also interacted with William Miller, who famously calculated one of the most nutso calculations on how to determine when the end of the world is coming. And... Um, it's not like any math I've ever encountered in school, um, but then he, he predicted the world would end in 1844. And what was so interesting to me about that is they used the technology of the time. They really embraced it. And the printing presses, and he printed tracks, and over half a million tracks of, the, of his predictions for the end of the world were disseminated through the United States, and people were believing it. And, you know, coming together to watch the end of the world happen. And, um, you know, the spoiler, because we're talking to each other, is it didn't happen. But out of that core group started this, the, the Great Awakening and this idea of spreading this message and that anybody could spread the message, that anybody could get some divine inspiration and say, no, no, my way is the way. God told me, do it this way. And from that comes a lot of I'm going to make a judgment and call it strange beliefs, but then also some more practical beliefs about um, how it is, how we can be human together. No, I mean, it, honestly, it, which speaks specifically to to what I don't know if you've seen the musical Book of Mormon, but mm -hmm. yeah. OK, so it, that's exactly what it's about, um, is that, you know, all religion is crazy. All belief is crazy in some regards and in some regards it's actually quite right um you know it depends on how we apply it um as humans and and in this case in your book you're weaving in food um to help tell these stories which i find fascinating because obviously i'm a foodie um you know but uh, in looking at all of this and and the ways that these different groups are embracing food. Did you see any sort of real consistency 
in terms of the ways that they approached cooking or and they approached, I mean, we talked about fasting, but cooking, I mean, like you mentioned in the book, you know, funerals, for example, you know, is there some sort of consistency between all of them? Is there some sort of rhyme and reason or not really? Not really. There, okay. there's, uh, goes back to Leviticus has a lot to do with it. And then um, people of the book and whether, whatever that book could be. So we think about the Abrahamic books, um, followed by, you know, the big three, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, but also um, the Bhagavad Gita and then the supplemental writings about Buddhism and about Hinduism. Everyone is looking in that book for a divine revelation. And a lot of times the ones that go off the rails a bit where they're coercive, these groups and these religious beliefs become um, not a force for good, but a force for not so good is when there is a faulty logic that is then taken to that faulty logical extreme. And that's where you get a lot of strange influences in the interpretation of the food. Um, in the New Testament, for a lot of the Christian-based groups, they rely on what's called the Edenic Covenant. That essentially, it's the passages that say, God's given you the entire world, and it, you, mankind, you're the boss of the world. And many groups have interpreted that is you can eat everything. Everything in the world given to you, to God, to eat. Conversely, other groups have interpreted that as like, no, no, we're the custodians of the earth. And so we have to be very careful and restrictive and respect all living things. And so that's where you see the genesis of many of the kind of Christian-inspired new religious movements that go vegetarian. They're looking at, that's how they interpreted this, is that, okay, God says, don't eat the animals. And so they don't. Uh, and where the science sometimes catches up is the example where you're talking about like the theosophists. Many of the theosophists followed um, a vegetarian diet because they were of that time period where people who were considered intellectually and spiritually superior were following vegetarian diets. It was considered, it was just considered a more evolved type of diet in the late 1800s, uh, a very intellectual type of diet. At the same time, they were also very influenced by what they understood to be Buddhist and Hindu writing. And a lot of the, how Americans interpreted that um, writing and the spirituality, we get it wrong. And that's one of the themes, you know, I think throughout um, that American history of food and religion and how they interact together is how often we get it wrong. It's all based on how somebody interpreted it. What I found interesting was, you know, the idea that vegetarianism took hold that early because I always think of vegetarianism as being something that sort of came to to be in vogue through different kinds of communes and whatnot in the 60s and 70s and and that clearly wasn't the case it was much earlier it began it began in the um late 1800s in the UK there was um part of like the Fabian society again the theosophists it was kind of a bit of um light woo uh, this ideas of that, again, it, based on what an understanding of the science of the day was, was reincarnation. Sure, that's possible. Talking to spirits. Sure, that's possible. So this idea of all these possibilities gets wrapped up in the ideas of how do we, how do we purify ourselves? That is the morph of, from mortification, giving up food, fasting, to then more restrictive diets about piety about how do we purify our bodies to be ready for not just God, but maybe a different type of spirituality, maybe a different type of God. Maybe it's our space brothers. 
because that's a lot of a lot of theosophists felt that there were you know ascended masters giants who walked the earth pre-garden of eden there was you know a different race maybe they're aliens maybe they're the nephilim who are they so you get all of this striving for answers and in that striving for answers um people look to then embrace the food part of it as a way i think to help identify fellow believers help recruit fellow believers and then also you know help weed out potential believers if you're not going to be willing to open your mind to follow a restrictive diet, you're not going to be open-minded enough to accept that maybe Jesus Christ was really a space alien. So one of the things that I think is interesting, too, is with this restriction that I noticed in some cases that, you know, people went all in on trying to make what they could have absolutely delicious. And, you know, there was a, a question of... um there was one group that created soda pops, a gourmet soda pops that I, I read about. That yeah, that's the Mormons. That's a modern thing. And right? the Mormons. Okay. Yeah, the Latter Day Saints. Those are those are branching out. They're franchises right now. I think there's one called Swizz, and they have fun names. And essentially, there you make gourmet soda pops by mixing all the flavors. If you think about the like kind of McDonald's soda dispenser, it comes in a syrup bag. So you can take that syrup and add the fizz and make all the crazy flavors you want and uh, make a lot of money from it. And that is the Latter-day Saints answer to coffee shops and a coffee shop culture and a, to create a third place. Because uh, um, in the Latter-day Saint tradition, no coffee, no stimulants. And that is one of their food restrictions. Yeah, but still, they, they turn that into something positive in terms of food, which I think, yeah. you know, interesting. It is, and it's they're not alone. In um, many of the groups have taken, like you said, to try to make it as delicious as possible. This goes back. I'm thinking right away. There's two of them that pop into mind. The Oneida. Um, the Oneida, we might remember grandma having a silver plate, you know, because they ended up as a commune and as a religious commune. Um, they were often knocked as a free love commune. And, um, you know, is love free? I'm not sure. Um, there was a lot of anti-marriage and that's fine. So they had some political beliefs wrapped up in the spiritual idea of perfectionism, which in a nutshell is that Jesus died for your sins. He's absolved everybody's sins. If you just follow the rules, you're not really sinning. That's, you know, perfectionism. We're already perfect. Um, so as the Oneida grew as a group and the gossip got out that they're like sex cult, they opened uh, their doors on Sunday afternoons. You could go and visit the Oneida commune. And then they decided to monetize it and they would see that the visitors would see that they're very boring and they're not really talking about much of anything except God and their own personal failings. It was very a rigorous self-investigation of what your personal failings are. But they served strawberry shortcake. They were very good farmers. They were very good cooks. And that's actually Harriet. Harriet was um, uh, John Humphrey Noyes, the founders, his sister. So his, the woman, of course, we remember Noise, but it's his sister, Harriet, who was the cook, who wrote the cookbooks, who took charge of the kitchens, and she perfected that strawberry shortcake recipe. And so the open houses that were initially, people would come to see the sex cult, they eventually came to for the strawberry shortcake. It, it's like we're back to the fish fry. It is the back to the fish fry. The other one, a more modern idea is uh, we think about communes, the farm commune. And again, this is um, my fascination with histories writ small. 
The farm commune in Middle Tennessee started really uh, though with the leader Stephen Gaskin. It falls under the idea of uh, ethnogenic, a drug church, where that idea in the 60s where you could see God through drugs. They moved as a separatist to Middle Tennessee, started this communal living and farming. None of them were farmers. And if you look at the demographic breakdowns of the time, the majority of them were Protestant. That's where the origination of like 1,500 people, majority are Protestant. Except if you look at their food culture, it is very Jewish. For one reason alone is that one of the uh, female women communards had an uncle, Uncle Bill, who was very upset and living in a nursing home in Florida. And they staged a very hippie breakout and rescued Uncle Bill, took him back to the commune. Uncle Bill was a Russian Jewish deli man. He worked in delis his entire life. The commune at the farm was vegetarian. And so over time, Bill loved being around all the young people. He loved just he just loved being there. And he adapted all his old traditional Jewish deli recipes to be vegetarian. And and so if you look at some of the farm cookbooks and the farm cuisine, you've got these great soy knishes that were rooted <laughs> in, you know, Jewish food culture, but twisted on its head a little bit and got to the farm. And to me, that is such a beautiful story of, again, our humanity and how the food influences the culture and the culture influences the food and the religion gets laid kind of across it and inserted in between it in just fascinating ways. Well, there's one topic because I was bringing up the fish fry and the the other book that I you know where I'd interviewed uh, Ryan who was terrific. Can we talk about black culture and and black you know black you know religion food the 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 combination that you I mean one of the things I thought was fascinating. Was you talk about the the nation of Islam and their diet, and they they were told that they need to stay away from all the foods that were considered classically you know Black American because that related to to their days as slaves. Um, yeah, but it, yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the um, Black American new religious movements get overlooked in in regular religious history. Um, there are some uh, black historians and religious history folks in universities across the United States doing extraordinary work right now. Um, I'm thinking specifically at, at LSU is Dr. Stephen Finley, who is just leading the way in researching um, black esoteric movements in the United States. And where that really adds a lot of information about what we understand about both food culture in the United States and religious culture is that many of the, the folks who were in these early days and in late 1800s, early 1900s, just as white American Protestants were thinking about their relationship to God and how that would be different, so were black people. And they, too, were looking at the same influences and the same movements that white people were and interpreting them through their own lived experience. So you see a lot of groups who were focused on the black culture, the black um, culture prior to enslavement, prior to um, what that what that meant. And then that goes to the sacredness of plants. We talk about root workers. And so you see a lot of the food culture in the community as a 
kind of a throwback, if you will, a throwback spirituality of what that food can mean. And that's where um, I find it really fascinating. You'll see a lot of the black veganism in modern day. And then also when we go back to the nation of Islam, again, a very interesting kind of belief system. They have um, an alien, space alien component to it. They have some lost tribe component to it. Um, and they have some really esoteric ideas about creation um, ascribed to it. But the food culture comes from just one man, from Elijah Muhammad. And a lot of it was informed by his own personal beliefs. Again, that rejection of anything that smacked of enslavement. Yeah. He thought, yeah. you know, you cannot eat that. And he went so far as to like which beans were okay. So it wasn't just a blanket, don't eat beans. It was you could only eat certain kinds of beans because the other ones were associated with, you know, it, it, that it, enslavement period. And it, his food system that he developed and encouraged everyone in the nation of Islam to follow is also really influenced by his personal taste, which is something that doesn't always get talked about. Is like we all have favorites. It's always the question of like, what if you were going to start a new religious movement? What would you serve to people? What would you make them eat? What would you ban? You'd probably ban things you personally don't like because, you know, why would you want your followers to eat food that you don't want to eat? So that goes to say about, and now the understanding of the science. So uh, Elijah Muhammad was very anti-processed food and very anti-salt at a time when that was being pushed as, you know, cheap and easy and nutritious for people. And if we look at it, you know, the scope of 50 years later, he was actually onto something. So he, it's a very low um, red meat, not, not a lot of red meat at all, a little chicken, a little fish, one meal a day primarily beans for protein, not a lot of sugar, and not a lot of salt. And that's a pretty healthy diet. And, you know, we keep hearing that there are, you know, food deserts in a lot of areas, you know, in urban communities where, where you know, and, and so to encourage that kind of diet when it, it's really hard to get to, you know, certain kinds of foods, I also wonder whether or not that that was a struggle. And therefore, if you were able to do it, that meant that you really, you know, cared about religion. You really cared about God and, you know. It was. It was an idea of a sacrifice and to make an effort. Um, and this goes back, too, to George Washington Carver, who himself, a very spiritual man, who was born enslaved. And as a genius, if uh, kids often, you know, you if you're in an American public school system, you read like George um, Washington Carver, inventor of peanuts and peanut butter. Oh, no, that is not it. He was a genius in um, understanding plant biologies and doing hybridization to for soil thriving. And so if we think about um, American farming, as it was in the post-Reconstruction era, era, where it was monocrop, soil depleted, black communities left alone. And they could not grow their own food because the soils would not support it. Carver's absolute genius research was about nitrogen fixing, replenishing the soil, and also an advocate for a self-sufficiency. And that goes back to then Elijah Muhammad picks up on some of that. This idea that you cannot be reliant on anyone but yourself. You need to grow your own food, eat the foods. And the foods that uh, George Washington Carver said that that God told him, and that's if you read any interviews with Carver, he's very clear. 
that he is not any smarter than anyone else. His wisdom came because God talked to him. God told him which plants were going to be best for nitrogen fixing. And of course, those plants happen to be the cowpea, the, the plant that early enslaved people smuggled back with them, came brought with them over the Atlantic. And so these foods are imbued with so much meaning uh, from a spiritual aspect that that meaning um, becomes performative for people in a positive way. And they become, so when you eat these foods, it's a reconnection to your history. It's a reconnection to your spirituality and it's a reconnection to your own uh, past and history. Well, I, I want to know exactly how you approached this book because I found it, you know, really every single chapter, there were stories, there were characters, and you didn't necessarily talk about the food extensively. You really talked about the grounding in 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 religion and, and where that came from and where these characters sort of intermingled. And then the food sort of came later in a lot of the discussion. And then there are recipes, of course, too. Can you talk a bit about that? Oh, absolutely. I think because food is such, it's primal. We all need it. We need to eat. I mean, you know, there's a couple of groups out there that say, say you don't, I'm, you know, breathitarians. No, don't do that. Please eat food. Um, and so it's such a main sustenance thing. It, it, we can't help but be obsessed with it. And so I wanted to talk about that religious influence. And in my mind, you had to understand a little bit about the origination of these religious beliefs. And then they got twisted a little bit and how, again, how that they came to their faulty logical end. And I tried to focus on groups that did have a food culture. There's a lot of groups out there that would fit these definitions of a cult or a commune or a new religious movement per se, but they didn't really care about food. And that's fine. So the organization I struggled with a little bit because it was a, it's a big story to try to tell. And I had a lot of starts and stops. I had some crisis of conscience. I had one mental breakdown for about three weeks where I just kind of like rocked back and forth for a little while as I tried to figure this all out um, when a very good friend who was my editor um, said with the feedback of what the hell are you doing here, <laughs> which is. And it's a good question to ask because this is the the tension within it. What are we doing? Um, and so it was the idea of trying to explain the influence as well as that tension and then how it influenced the food and then how that these small groups of food cultures then became large because that's the part to me that has most resonance with modern readers and modern Americans is this idea that we're eating something like that filet of fish, like a strawberry shortcake, like Little Debbie's, like kettle chips, like Celestial Seasonings tea, or going to the Yellow Deli or the Loving Hut vegan restaurant. Again, those are all foods and restaurants that have association with these religious movements and, you know, kind of cultish ideas. Um, and that idea that it's all running under the surface. And I wanted to kind of pick at it a little bit to bring it you know, above the surface. So we're thinking about it a little bit more and we're thinking about um, why, why are people doing this? And again, including the recipes in my mind gave a fuller picture. So it's not just you're reading about uh, the house of David as a vegetarian uh, commune, new religious movement in the early 1900s who decided that they were the true Jews 
just, you know, they just made that decision. They're the Jews, not anybody else. We are. You're the chosen. They were the chosen. And but at the same time, why why was the food pretty good? You know, and so this was the idea. The House of David, fantastic. Um, Benton Harbor, Michigan, which is a train ride away from Chicago. And again, they took their commune, they took their bakery, they took their their good food, and they made it into like kind of a recreation area. There were shows, there was a little amusement park that went with it. And because they were these, what they call, you know, the kind of lost tribes, non-Jewish Jews, they um, that many Chicago Jews would go there for their we for their summer holidays. You knew they knew they were kosher food to be served. They knew it was healthy. They, you know, they didn't have to worry if they were following an Orthodox kosher, um, you know, food for you know what we'd call real Jews could go to this like not real Jew resort and and fulfill their religious obligations and have a good time. I just want to say I've had a really great time talking to you, and I I can't say what a, a fascinating trip it is to read holy food. Uh, I haven't made any of the recipes. I do want to know from you, out of all the recipes in the book, which is the one that is your favorite? Um, I have a few favorites. Now, um, as a t- I'm a vegetarian, but not by choice. Um, I've got, uh, in Wisconsin, I've got alpha-gal, which is people that may have been reading about, which is the meat protein allergy that you got from ticks. Um, and so I'm very drawn to um, the vegetarian recipes. I also have a sweet tooth. So with all of those caveats, um, the Tassahara nut buttered beans are fantastic and so easy to do. You don't necessarily think it's going to go together very well, which is essentially like a big canale white beans and um, like a, a peanut butter, if you will. A, you can do peanut butter and onion. It's really simple and, and really, really delicious. The other one I really like is the English walnut loaf. And that, again, that's a house of David. Um, I like some of the very early vegetarian recipes because they lack the marketing aspect of it of some of what we call them the fake meats that are happening the the vegetarian recipes at the time were trying to taste like themselves um and not try to taste like meat and so i think that they have a lot more dynamic flavors in them well i'm going to have to try both those recipes and uh your book comes out i believe on the 26th of september i can't say enough good things about holy food um but i guess i could say something something uh more if i if I tried to fast, I don't know, would that make it a better thing if I was fasting and then said it was good? But um, thank you so much, Christina, and um, best of luck with the book. I, I've got a feeling that this is a book that is going to make the rounds in sociology classes and religious studies classes, and um, it's going to be fascinating for foodies as well. So thank you. Oh, gosh. Thank you for having me, Laura. It's been a delight to um, kind of talk about the work and, and talk about some of the recipes as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening today. Okay.